podcast, second episode in. Uh, this is Dan Worley. I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Wallach. Dan, how are you doing today? Uh, doing terrific. Uh, very excited about today's show. We had a great debut last week, and just the intersection of crime and sports just keeps continuing, and that leads us to today's episode. Exactly. And we're uh, lucky to have our first guest ever on the Conduct Instrumental podcast, uh, Diana Moskovitz from Deadspin. Diana, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Diana, this is Dan. Uh, you know, what I found very interesting about your background before we jump into Derek Rose is you're, you're from Miami. You're a Miami native. Uh, I am. Well, I feel like I should clarify for the South Floridians. I'm, I'm from Broward County, so I don't want anyone to think I'm a poser. Um, although I did work um, at the Miami Herald in my, in my last about two and a half years, I was working in Miami-Dade County. But um, I'm technically from the 954. I just don't want anyone to think I'm faking it. So in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm from right, well, Broward. I- Oh, I know you're not faking it because I'm I'm physically located in the 954 area code. I'm uh, surreptitiously uh, podcasting today from my law office in Broward County on Broward Boulevard. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Norm, I'm a New York native who moved to Florida 15 years ago, uh, and you're a, a South Florida native who escaped to Los Angeles. What was your uh, What was your beat when you were working at the Miami Herald? Were you covering you know crime or sports? What was the uh, What was your typical uh, you know day like? Um, I did a little bit of everything. I mostly did crime and breaking news because it's South Florida and there's no shortage of that. Um, so I always say the easiest answer is that I did crime and breaking news and and child welfare, um, for about seven and a half years. Although there's gaps where you might find I did three months covering Pembroke Pines. My very first job there, I was covering Dania Beach and Hallandale Beach and also doing some crime and breaking news when those cities were slow on news. And, you know, especially with all the changes in people's jobs over the years there during the various rounds of furloughs and layoffs. I I wore many hats, but I was always on the news side and the vast majority of my stories were about crime and um, courts and breaking news. And my last about year to two years there, I did a lot of work on um, child welfare and child endangerment with Carol Marvin Miller as well. So... Okay, well, Deadspin, you seem to be, uh, you know, covering the intersection of sports and crime, and you're doing a, a fair amount of investigative reporting, putting your old, uh, you know, crime story uh, investigative skills to good use. Yeah, it's been um, an, an interesting experience. I, I always say that when I first reached out to Tommy Craggs and Tim Marchman, my pitch was essentially, you know, there are stories that are gettable that I can help you get. Um, and it, especially in areas that require a lot of talking to the police or just doing a lot of public records requests. So, and I still feel like on a basic level, that's still my job you know what are stories that in a traditional sports desk just tend to fall through the cracks and I think that's something that Deadspin um, has and hopefully will continue to really thrive at doing we're actually talking about the Josh Brown controversy today Diana's been all over this on Deadspin I I mean I think we've three or four articles in the last 10 days or so all of which are excellently 
done and you know broke some news and uh, deep dives exactly. Um, so let's get right into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the good place to start is um, you know looking back at the first time, or I guess the only time presently that Josh Brown was suspended by the NFL, and um, you know the suspension came out. It was one game didn't mesh with the current policy. There was questions, but we didn't have all the information. So the NFL released this statement, and I found it interesting, their rationale for, quote-unquote, only one game. Um, The first thing that they said was, Molly didn't cooperate with us, so they immediately blamed the victim, which is, we'll we'll get to more of that in a little bit, but was a kind of typical NFL move. And then second, they said... You know, they had numerous requests out to law enforcement, and law enforcement denied their requests. Uh, And then obviously, over the past couple weeks, we've seen a lot more information leak out. Can you, you wrote an article, a very interesting article about how the NFL should have been able to find this information. Can you kind of walk us through the public requests that you did to find information in this case? Right. So there's two separate tracks on this. One is what law enforcement is doing. And even that, as you know, is a little different because you have the sheriff's deputies and you also have prosecutors, which as you guys know, as you guys know, even in that there's some separation. And then what we also have is pretty soon um, after Molly Brown called the police, it, it was within a week or two, she started the process of getting a divorce. And so you have a couple different tracks. One is the NFL was reaching out to the police department. It's worth noting as the police department I'm sorry, the sheriff's office pointed out. And um, as we confirmed with public records from them, the NFL reached out, but in a very, you know, odd way, their private investigator did not even identify that he was with the NFL. His request did not even include his phone number. I personally put my phone number on most of my public records requests so people can get back to me. So <laughs> so it was even just at, at a basic level, I would say not the best filled out and the guy had a P.O. box. And so I think it's fair for the sheriff to say, who is this random person with a P.O. box and no phone number? And so then what they did with him, which is what they should do, is they basically released records to them at the rate that they've been releasing them to everyone else, including the media, um, which makes sense. And I think I should point out is actually very important Um there have been a lot of controversies in the past uh, questioning the NFL and, and sports leagues in general about their influence on law enforcement. And I think if we're going to tell victims of domestic violence, go to law enforcement for help, it's really important for us to see that law enforcement is working with the victim and not immediately leaking her information and you know everything she's been through to the NFL. That's a really important relationship for a victim to feel like these people are trying to be helpful and have your best interest in mind and your best interest, not the NFL, yours. Those are two different things. So, you know, they told the NFL, you're going to have to wait like everyone else. Personally, I think that's completely the right thing to do. You know, I think that police investigation is a lot more important than what Roger Goodell thinks. Um, So that was what they did on that 
side of things. I, I don't know if they had any conversations with prosecutors. Um, on the other side, Molly Brown is also going through her divorce in Washington State. Divorce files are public. And as part of the divorce, it, she basically laid out in uh, many details, not quite as many details as the police record, but in a fair bit of detail, what she was going through and described her personal hell and how fearful she was of her then husband and what were the problems, what were the triggers, what was starting the fighting, what hadn't worked for them in therapy and the fear that she lived in. And that's a public record, at least in Washington. It was very easy to get. I did not do any super deep secretive <laughs> research. This was not the Pentagon Papers. <laughs> um, I, I got a copy of their divorce file. And, um, and in there, she mentions, and understandably, with the court, they were filed under seal. I, I think we can understand that. These, this involves mental health. That's right, a very sensitive right. issue. But um, in her one of her filings, she basically gave a summary of what was in there. She said, I have these records that show Josh admitting to abusing me. I have these records in which he talks about the fear he's put us in. You know, And even though those specifics were under seal, she says, this is what I've filed with you. And obviously, the court took it very seriously. She got a uh, protective order through the court. You know, She was granted child support. So... I think it's fair to say whatever she filed under seal without even seeing it like we have, the court took it very seriously. And that's always been available to the NFL. It was not a secret that they were getting a divorce. Josh Brown said it in his August press conference. That's how I knew about it, actually. He said he was getting a divorce, so I thought I should I should look at this file and see what's in it if it's public. And it, it was. So that's another piece where... I have no idea why the NFL did not get this. You know, this is something that we talk about in really basic reporting classes, you know, about mm-hmm. getting public records, what are things to look for, and, and one of them is divorce records. They do vary from state to state. Obviously, you can't get them at every state, but that's how I knew to check. And for whatever reason, the NFL did not. <laughs> Well, when did the when did the divorce records first become known to you? When he had that August 2016 press conference, that was more than a year after he was arrested for a fourth degree assault. Uh, was anybody looking into those divorce records in the year plus between May 22nd, 15, and August of 2016? I don't know. Uh, one of my colleagues did reach out to the clerk of court to see if they kept track of who pulls these files, and they said they didn't, um, which is not surprising. The, there's so many records they manage at any given time. Uh, it's, I don't think that's a great conspiracy. I just don't think they would have time to keep track of all that. So, look, it is possible that the NFL got it and they're lying or they didn't get it, and we have to talk about gross incompetence. Neither answer is very good, though, if we're being right, honest. We're right. basically picking between liars or idiots. So this Robert Agnew fellow, I mean, is there a strategy on the NFL's part to have him act sort of anonymous, use generic email addresses? Do we even know if he works directly for the NFL or is he an independent contractor? I mean, how much of this is out there? Right. So what we know is that he has his own 
firm, according to his LinkedIn. And on his LinkedIn, he also did list that he worked for the NFL. Um, but the exact details of their relationship, we don't know. The NFL hasn't said anything. The only reason we know what we know is because of the King County Sheriff. He's the one who's practicing transparency. He, he's the one who's saying, here's what's going on. The NFL hasn't said anything. So because of that, we can only know what they knew at their end, which is some random guy sent us a public records request that <laughs> was not even the best public records request we've ever seen. Um, I, I should say it's worth pointing out two things. Um, one is we can't be certain it's him, but that name does come up in an Indy Star investigation, which was amazing and incredibly important about how USA and Gymnastics was practicing basically a, a way of ignoring concerns about abuse and not taking them seriously enough and letting them fly under the radar. His name came up in that as an investigator who was kind of like, oh, do I really need to tell the cops? Uh, um, it's the same name. He did not uh, get back to us to confirm it was him. So I can only say it's someone with the same name, a private investigator. Um, the other thing is, I think it's important to remember, we dealt with this with Ray Rice. The NFL did an internal investigation of its investigation into Ray Rice, which found that one of the problems was that their the private investigator on the case was just, he was just, we called him a dunce in our headline, and I still think that's the best word. He just wasn't very good. It was a very unimpressive investigation, you know. And when you read it, that report, you're not surprised at all that TMZ would get the tape before the NFL. So I think that's important to remember. This isn't even the first time we've had these questions. Right. And I think that... The NFL keeps telling its players that it has all these super secret CIA, FBI, dark ops. We will know your every move. I don't know. I At some point, when are we just going to go? Maybe you're just a, a bunch of yokels, right. actually. Well, like Maybe that's all you are. It's kind of bizarre that they have beefed up their investigations department. They've made these named hires. They've you know, publicized these hires. And then... We find out that they're basically hiring independent contractors to go out and do work. I mean, obviously, this guy, if he was also working with USA Gymnastics to cover up other crimes, uh, you know, he's not solely working for the NFL. Um, it, you know, it seems kind of bizarre that they would be counting on this guy. Right. And they also did have someone with. Um I'm going to bungle the name. I want to say it was either T&M or TMI. Who, who, uh, it's T&M who reached out to Molly Brown. Um, and I think this is really important. This person reached out to Molly Brown, and Molly Brown immediately reached out to the, de the detective on her case and said, I don't know who this person is. They're freaking me out. I, you know, can you talk to them? <laughs> you know, and then – proceeded to not talk to that person. And that person then started calling the detective on the case who said, I'm not going to give you the case file. You need to wait. It's an open investigation. Right. So um, I think it's a really important thing is that especially in these cases, and especially when they're open, if the victim's not going to talk to you, I don't know what you expect. And I think with Molly Brown, and I doubt she's the only one, it's very clear that these women have concerns about trusting the NFL. And I think those are very valid. What has the NFL done to deserve any battered woman's trust, you know, on this issue? And 
So I just don't, I, I really think, you know, that's why I write about treating the players like human beings, because I do think it has to start there because if they don't trust you, they're not going to go along with your investigation. Why should they? Right. And if you're, they're not, then what's the point? <laughs> I agree. And if, for those of us who have dealt with private investigators before, some of them can come across uh, a little brash per se. And uh, I think I could imagine when she got that phone call and, you know, getting a voicemail and that would probably freak a lot of people out. There was um, in the, the Peyton Manning HGH case, he hired PIs to go over to uh, what's his name? Charlie Sly's house. And they apparently mm-hmm. showed up and, you know, tried to strong arm him and, uh, you, you kind of see this over and over. So if the NFL's employing these people is uh, allowing them to go out and, and do what they want, it's it's no surprise that this is sort of the result that happens. Um, right. Diana, what, what would have been different had the NFL identified itself? Uh, you, know, you know, First of all, it, it, it does seem strange to me that they would be so stealth in how they uh, request records from the Kings County uh, you know, Sheriff's Office. But if the records were part of an open investigation and all that could be released was some so-called super form, how could the NFL have been in any better position uh, with sealed divorce records and, 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 and a sealed police file? They would have been no smarter even had they gone about things the right way. So what could they have done differently? You know, I'm going to defer to what the sheriff said. Said because this came up in his radio interview on KIRO, and I I think it's no different than why do I identify myself as a reporter? Um, I I don't want to say every time, but I would say the vast majority of the time I identify as a reporter when I request public records, and I know the law says I don't have to, but it's just the the professional thing to do so that people know, um, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, and I think it's the same thing. I think when it's just basic professionalism, if you're an NFL investigator, say you're an NFL investigator for the same reason I say I'm a reporter um, so that people have an idea of who you are. It might give them an idea of if they need to be proactive. Oh, my gosh, these records say something before we release them. Let's make sure we tell her there's something else not reflected in them. So professionalism, but also, like the sheriff said, he said that if someone from the NFL had tried to talk to him, he probably would have told them, hey, you know, you you don't want to rush this. Obviously, we're not going to talk to you about an open investigation, but I can tell you that, um, you know, things are changing. We're learning different things. You know, there's a reason we're taking our time. So you don't want to rush this either. You know, and I think that would have been fair and reasonable but he can't even have the option to do that if he doesn't know this guy's with the nfl or conversely all they're asking for is the file of what we've heard from the detective in her reports and also from the sheriff is they just kept asking for the case file and you just you can't get that on an open case you just you can't and so at that point what else is there. Um, So I do think that's why it matters to identify. Okay. What about the alternative approach of just getting the records directly from the player? Uh, Instead of going through all these hurdles of waiting for an investigation to wrap up, 
uh, what the NFL ends up looking like is they get egg on their face when a suspension is meted out, and then they learn uh, inconvenient uh, uh, details after the fact. Wouldn't it behoove the NFL to put the burden on on the player uh, to turn over any and all relevant documents that you've provided to either law enforcement, such as in the case, you know, maybe the Ray Rice uh, videotape could have been made available at an earlier time had had Rice's attorneys agreed to release the document to the uh, the videotape to the NFL. Should should the NFL be going maybe more directly to the source and putting putting the burden on the player? You know. You know they can, but I think that then we really need to unpack the can of worms that is the relationship between the NFL and the NFLPA. And as we know in the Rice case, um, Rice's lawyers had that tape, and I'm sure Josh Brown and his attorneys had all this as well. Um, but first, I mean, we just have to unpack. You're basically asking someone to incriminate themselves, right? I mean, that's what you're asking them to do is incriminate themselves. Compromise their ability to defend the case. But if the NFL is going to want to investigate uh, an offense for possible discipline, I don't see how they can do it on incomplete information. It's either get the whole file now or wait until the wheels of justice finish spinning. And, you know, personally, this is just one person's opinion. I think that's okay. I mean, I think that... Especially, and this is something I've been talking about a lot lately, if you think about the safety of the victim first, and I realize this requires completely upending how we think about punishment in the NFL, right? I'm basically talking crazy at this point. But if we're going to put the safety of the victim first, because I think that's the most important thing, if the most important thing is getting Molly Brown out, then I think it makes perfect sense to say... We got to wait, you know, so that we know everything that we're dealing with so that we can make an educated decision that makes sense based on her circumstances as opposed to just pulling it out of our ass, you know. And part of the reason they do need to wait is because nobody trusts them and they should not trust them. The NFL has done nothing to earn any player's trust or any wife's trust or any girlfriend's trust or any partner's trust. So, yeah, NFL, you do have to wait because no one's going to help you because why would they? You know, when we this I just I know that's not a convenient answer, but they haven't earned any trust from the players and they haven't earned any trust from the wives. At least that's not the impression that I get. So, yeah, you're going to have to wait. And that might mean taking some PR egg yolk on your face. But doing this half-ass thing with the Browns got you egg yolk on your face. So at least, in my opinion, it would be nice if you picked the version of egg yolk where you could at least say we didn't re-victimize the victim <laughs> and make her life worse. I think that's worth something in this conversation. Okay, I mean, we're not just talking about domestic violence cases. We could be talking about any criminal charge Against a player, there's a presumption of innocence, and there's a, a you know need to prepare a defense and and worry about you know clearing your name in court without having to incriminate yourself in a in a, in a labor disciplinary proceeding. So, 
I mean, the NFL over the last couple of years has wanted to shoot first, ask questions later, and 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 conduct parallel investigations before before the uh, the criminal uh, justice system has has you know rendered its verdict. Right. And, right. I think know. the big question there, though, is we've seen sort of time and time again that the criminal justice system failing us. I think that's not a big enough topic <laughs> talking point that's out there. Uh, but in cases like this, in cases like Ray Rice, there's obviously no no action taken on that front. Uh, how I mean, how do we level that with you know the NFL then taking action on its own? Uh, you know, even aside from the criminal justice. I mean, do we have to wait? Do we? I mean, obviously we just said that we have to wait. But I mean, should they be able to do disciplinary action even without the criminal justice system acting? Well, I think there's two things that's going on here, which is what's legal and then what's best. As you both know, those are two different things. Look, legally, the NFL is an employer. It can, it's very powerful. You know, it could have a zero tolerance policy if it wanted to. That's not illegal. They can do it. Um, the question then becomes, you know, is that what's best for victims and for making people safer and for creating an environment where, um, domestic violence just isn't tolerated internally, which is very important. And they're just two different things. And I think especially when we talk about the criminal justice system, it has not been the great savior that people I think might have hoped for when the Violence Against Women Act passed. Um, it has made some difference. It has obviously not been the total solution either. And so then the question becomes, does the failure of the criminal justice system, does that mean we need to turn the NFL into that? So if trying to get tough in the criminal justice system didn't work, does that mean the NFL needs to get tough? And, you know, it's just the issue with the criminal justice system is that part of the problem there is that the victim is also the witness, the main witness. And for a lot of psychological reasons, a person who's battered will not want to testify against the person who battered them. And this is something that prosecutors have struggled with and have tried to work around. And this is part of why there's many reasons why you, you will see plea deals sometimes. Um, because this way, the woman doesn't have to testify. We can use the court to get him into a batterer intervention program, you know, which can help if he buys into it and gets into one of the good ones, batter's intervention is a, a mixed bag. Some work, some don't, and everyone is still trying to figure out why. And so then it becomes, okay, well, this hasn't made everything great and wonderful and, and sparkly and perfect and cured everything. Um, I just don't know that the logics then follow. Uh, we should get tough with our football players then because getting tough in the criminal justice system isn't working. Um, I, I just don't quite see how one follows the other. I see it as getting tough in criminal justice hasn't solved everything. So let's take what we've learned from that and apply it to the NFL. Um, because otherwise I just think it, we, you run the risk of just re repeating the same mistakes. You know, why should we repeat these state, these mistakes again with the NFL, I just don't see the point of that. There are things that now we know don't work. And one of them is zero tolerance. So why are we going to repeat it? Legally, the NFL can do that. They can do whatever they want. Uh, I just don't know that it's the most effective system. And I 
I worry that it might look good, but it will do just as much to drive victims underground than it will to have them coming forward and getting help so that we can help them um, either hopefully reform the person they're in a relationship with, or if that doesn't work, get out. So you think the NFL is more interested in um, exacting justice than in actually helping anybody? Oh, they don't care about helping anybody. Um, I say that and I see, woo, what a juicy quote. Um, but <laughs> they, I just, I don't think that they're that interested in, in helping anybody. I don't see what they've done that to me looks like a step toward helping people, you know, even with just the no more campaign, which is this empty sham that doesn't even really do anything except occasionally make PSAs and flyers. You know, why, why do they do that? Why not during the Super Bowl show the national domestic violence hotline, right? That's a little thing, but it's a huge thing, you know, that's, and instead they give it to just this Madison Avenue PR campaign cooked up by a bunch of brands you know they um i think another great example is is molly brown she said over and over again to deputies she was afraid of what would happen if the nfl would find out she didn't want the nfl to find out you know she wouldn't even talk to their private investigators um that's his income i mean you know she's dependent upon uh josh brown to pay her child support and why should she want to give information to a private employer that's going to cut the uh, that, that's going to cut the supply source of any income that that family unit receives. It right. doesn't doesn't behoove her to even cooperate. Exactly, and so that's why you know, the whole principle that the NFL is working off of when they say we're going to do independent investigations so that we can levy our own brand of justice mm-hmm. with what? I, I highly doubt Molly Brown was the only wife of an NFL player who felt that way, you know, about whatever private problems she, she had, and even just beyond domestic violence. And so they've just, I I don't know, I don't even quite know how to explain it, because it's just, to think they could pull that off requires a worldview that I just don't understand. You know, you're their employer. These people do not have guaranteed contracts, right? We keep hitting upon that issue with the NFL. The concern that you can get cut at any minute, which just happened to Josh Brown, um, which we've also talked about with concussions, right? Players play through injury because they're incredibly concerned about getting cut. So that's a huge factor hanging over this, you know, uh, which is, again, another thing that just shows how do you expect the NFL to believe it cares about you as a human being, you know, even just beyond domestic violence, just all the, the, the woes we go through living this life. And it can't even guarantee your next paycheck. Why would you reach out to them for help? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. At any point during your investigation, did you learn of any time at which the NFL reached out to Molly Brown to offer protection or help or to, or to, or to ask or direct Josh Brown to seek some kind of uh, you know, therapy or counseling? What did the NFL do other than request public records and initiate uh, you know, a, a disciplinary proceeding against Josh Brown? Did, was there anything constructive that the league done that the league did during – uh, that you learned during the investigation, other than simply record compilation? Right. That's a really good question. Um, not much. I can't say definitively that they did nothing, um, although there's there's not much. Um, she did say that at one point in, 
I believe it was 2013, Josh went to a counselor um, who we don't know how she was referred to him. She said that he was very popular with NFL players. Um, So he could have just as easily been referred through another player. We don't know if the league did that or not. And it was actually as part of that program, he generated some of the records that have since been released by uh, the sheriff's office. Um, We know that that as part of their divorce, um, as is fairly common in a situation like this, as part of it, he was required to go to some counseling. And given that he was an NFL player instead of it being a court mandated one, uh, they agreed to have it be NFLPA approved. Um, the person that Josh saw through the NFLPA is actually a sports psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, I, I can't remember which one who mostly did sports, who had actually done a lot of pre-draft evaluations for the giants in the past. Although he told me he did not see that as a conflict of interest. Um, but it was someone who did not have a domestic violence background, who does not even really talk about domestic violence on his website and gave me some, we'll call them interesting quotes about um, what he thought about domestic violence and how um, it worked. He, he told me at one point, pretty much any qualified therapist can work on domestic violence issues. So, you know, chew on that. Wow. Um, and then that is pretty much it though you know one thing that's really important is what's come out about the pro bowl which we know that josh brown was drunk he was banging on her door and just making a a scary horrific sounding scene to the point that molly brown had to switch hotel rooms nfl security got involved so we know the nfl knew there's been reports that via nfl security the giants knew but nothing in any of these records to indicate that afterwards anyone reached out to her, anyone talked to her about help, about counseling for Josh, and especially help for her, you know, um, if she needed anything, you know, even if it was just, you know, another person to talk to. There's, at least I can say there's nothing in the records the uh, sheriff's office has released that indicate anyone from the NFL did anything constructive after that. And I have not seen any reporting from league sources. I think it's important, important to point out the timing of that too. That was during this year's pro bowl, I yes. believe. Right. And that, so that was during the 10 month period when they were actually investigating mm-hmm. uh, the incident. I, I mean, it's alarming to me that that during the investigation, there was actually another incident that occurred at an NFL event with NFL security involved, and that that didn't show up at all in their sort of original 10-month investigation recap. No, um, not only did it not show up, but remember when they finally did admit to um, why Josh Brown was suspended. Remember, this all came up because Josh Brown was suspended and people were trying to figure out why. Um, they blamed Molly. <laughs> they blamed her. They said that their investigation was hindered by Molly Brown, which is now we just know that's bullshit because you know exactly what happened in that hotel, you know, and I just, and then they blamed her, you know, months after that. It's just shocking. And then what's going to happen is, you know, this will happen again because statistically it's likely because domestic violence is incredibly common and, the victim's not going to want to cooperate 
and everyone's going to wonder why. Of course not, because no matter what you do, you just get blamed by them. Right. And we saw the NFL's admittedly lack of sensitivity in the Ray Rice case, too, when they interviewed his wife, Janae, in the same room as him, which is, you know, anyone with a domestic violence background knows that's a huge no-no. So it's just incredible. But uh, you kind of touched on the Giants' role in all this. I mean, what... What, what's happened on their end? What what failings can be attributed towards the team as opposed to the league? And uh, do we know if they the two were talking this whole time? Uh, right. This is always the, the tricky thing because so much authority on this has kind of been absorbed into the nebulous league office. Um, conveniently, I would say, shielding the owners who actually have the power from um, having to make tough decisions. And, you know, I think we can't know for certain, but I think part of the reason people are so upset is that, especially this is the Mara family, which anyone who grows up with football, they know what that name means. They are one of the original families. This is one of the original teams, you know, it, the Mara, just that name Mara in football means so much. And to believe that they didn't know anything. Again, we're kind of back where we started, where it's either you are just incredibly incompetent or lying. And I don't like either of those answers, you know, and especially when it's the Maras, you know, they are just one of those families that we're all told is setting the standard. And that plus, you know, Mr. Mara's comments, which Annie Apple called out and her son plays for the Giants. It just, and in some ways, I think that's even the scarier part is to hear what came out of the owner's mouth directly. Because if that's how your owner thinks, well, of course, the players are just going to be a reflection of that, right? What kind of leadership would just say, oh, we didn't really know the extent of it, you know? Um, oh, we were still trying to figure it out. Uh, it just, to me, I think that's one of the most disturbing parts because I know that that's, that's setting an example for these players. That's setting an example for the rest of the league. That's setting an example for some of the newer owners. So regardless of whether they knew every single little thing or not, it's still just, there's so many questions about the giants and I don't think any of the answers are good because it's just going to come down to lying or some sort of negligence and incompetence because especially after the pro bowl, how are you missing this and how are you not getting them help? And how are you not trying to come up with a plan that helps them you know, helps Molly and her children be safer, you know, while also, you know, doing what you have to do, you know, with, with Josh Brown. Um, yeah, I just, whether or not they knew every single little thing, they had to know something. And if they didn't know something, that's not good either. And they signed to a new contract a couple of months Afterwards, I mean, he, he, he they signed to a one-year contract, and I think what bothers a lot a lot of people around the league about the about the d- differential treatment between the Brown case and many others is they think the Giants, you know, get treated better because of the relationship between Mara and and Roger Goodell, 
And I, I know a lot of folks in the New England area are scratching their heads wondering why their star quarterback uh, gets fined or, or, or suspended for four games. Their team gets docked a first-round draft choice. Uh, mm-hmm. That pales in comparison to the kind of conduct that was at issue with, with Josh Brown. And it also, I, I think, some, some black players in the league have been pointing to a double standard racially. Um, has, can, can, can you address both of those points? Well, I, I think to address that, you kind of have to address just NFL justice makes no sense. It just doesn't. Because what we're always going to hit with the issue of domestic violence is that whenever they try to leave you some sort of punishment, someone's going to go, but you just suspended that other guy six games for smoking pot, mm-hmm. right? Because there's so many stupid, ridiculous rules on the books that the only way you can look like you're getting tough and taking it seriously is to throw down the hammer, which then opens up this whole issue of, wait a minute, is that just going to drive victims underground? Is that just going to potentially put women in more danger? So I think we just had to start off with really talking about how the whole system is messed up. It doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. And so, of course, we get resolutions that make no sense. I, I just think with NFL justice, we're starting with such a flawed premise that trying to look for any way to find logic within it is ridiculous. It just is, you know, I I just don't see how you're ever going to get a result that makes sense when, again, we're starting with a higher baseline for, you know, pot than a lot of other things while America's moving towards legalizing pot, you know, when players get fined, you know, five figures for having the wrong colors on their cleats, you know, like there's just so many stupid rules. And I think if we're going to talk seriously about serious issues like domestic violence, you have to start with not bothering with a lot of stupid stuff, you know, and and that's just what makes it so frustrating, at least for me, because I know no matter what I say, someone's going to go, well, that guy got 10 games for, you know, smoking too many joints and they're right. Right. They're right. And so it's just, it's so flawed. It's so messed up. And You know, another thing I'll throw out there, which I've thought a lot about, especially as people have brought up race, is that the NFL is completely reactionary. They're just completely reactionary. They only react to how much people are yelling, you know, and that's another thing that makes the way they've handled all this so far very dangerous because they're not thinking about what's going to make people safer. I'm not sure if they're even thinking about what will make our players better people. They're just reacting to how angry people are. And that makes it very dangerous because who can predict how and why and when and where the American public gets angry about anything, you know? And I think that's where, um, that's really where the danger lies because they just react. If people weren't upset about this for whatever reason, I mean, if the police I'm sorry, the sheriff's office um, had not released those documents last week. Um, There might not be all this public anger. And would the NFL be doing anything? You know, they're just completely reactionary. And that, I think, is very, very dangerous and is where I think you can definitely, you know, have a lot of conversations about, you know, double standards and favoritism between teams, and even if race is a factor, because they're just they're just reacting. 
that's all they think about. <laughs> yeah, and, and the irony here is these players are becoming roadkill. Uh, when you when you look at the the case of Ray Rice, no longer in the National Football League, can't even get a tryout. Greg Hardy, same thing. Uh, Josh Brown, same thing will happen. We have a domestic violence policy in place that is supposed to carry with it a baseline punishment for a first offense of six games. And when, this, when, when the justice is not meted out uh, consistently or properly, there's this public outcry, and then the NFL reacts accordingly. And regardless of what the suspension is, these players are be, you know, become unemployable. And is there, is there some way to address this? You know, I really think so much of it just has to do – I mean, personally, I just want the entire player conduct just gutted, revamped, changed because I still think a huge part of the problem is you can't do anything reasonable when you start out with a baseline of unreasonable. You know, so long as we have some of these arcane rules about cleats and colors of your uniform and, you know, whether or not you smoked a joint on Friday night, it it makes it so hard to um to actually handle serious problems seriously and like adults and to make the really tough decisions that we have to make, especially in cases of domestic violence. Um, so I think there's that. And the other thing is, you know, with all these players who we've talked about so far, these were all players who were, it's, it's cruel to talk about it in these terms, but none of them were completely necessary to their team. Um, my colleague now at the New York Times, so technically no longer colleague, Greg Howard, wrote something great about Ray Rice uh, where the headline was, the, the problem isn't that he punched his wife, but when? He was trending down at a position where you tend to age out of it pretty quickly because running back is brutal. Um, you know, Greg Hardy was just as much not playing well when the Cowboys chose to not bring him back as he was also accused of doing something really horrible. And the same thing with Josh Brown. Look, he's an aging kicker in the NFL. And I'm really – what I want to know There's is what's no going to happen when, um, when the NFL has a player who's um, seen as not expendable. You know, what happens when it's with someone's franchise quarterback – what do they do? Because right now they're just taking the easy way out every time. And that's not fair to the, any of the players. And it's not fair to their wives and ex-wives and partners. It's just not fair to anybody. And I wonder what they'll do when it involves a really important player, what they're going to do. Yeah, Daniel, you mentioned that, you know, I was going to end, end the podcast by asking you whether you think that the, MLB and NFL, you know, since they're both relatively new, policies are working, but you've obviously answered that question already. Uh, but but you mentioned that you the first thing that you would do would rip be rip up the NFL's personal conduct policy. I mean, how, what kind of things, if you were re- going to rebuild that, would you include in such a policy? You know, oh, goodness, I can't even like begin to think right. about that honestly. I mean, what would you I, focus I on? I mean, I've heard I've heard a lot a lot of things you're saying. I think it's a fantastic point. Is that the first place you start with all of this is think about the victim, not about anything else. I mean, so if that's the case, I mean, where do we sort of start to build uh, not inherently corrupt policy? You know, I think. It really does start with thinking about the victims and just saying that 
it almost sounds, you know, it sounds cheesy and it requires a lot of faith, which is something a lot of people don't have in the NFL, which is a problem. But ideally, you would just want something that says we are going, you know, to handle this on a case by case basis because every case is different. Every woman needs something different. And especially in the NFL, uh, where you just have so many players and every roster is at 64 guys and they're all living in different cities and different states and they come from different homes, from different backgrounds, as do their wives. I, you know, I feel like you just want to start with building a place where when people need help, they actually want to come to you for help. If that sounds really crazy and hippie-ish, I know. Um, cause that, cause you can't help anyone who doesn't tell you there's a problem. You know, yeah. you, you no, can't it help that. sounds perfectly logical to me, actually. <laughs> right. And so I really think you just have to start with like, how can we build a community where people and help come to us? And then we can start talking about what are the steps. And that's why I feel like this is such so tough with the NFL because no one trusts the NFL and they shouldn't. And so I don't. And so you end up with this horrible adversarial relationship where nobody wins. I don't think anybody thinks anybody is in a better place right now. I hate to say it, um, but it's so adversarial. Everyone is at odds. I think everyone's just looking out for their own best interest. And you know, I get it. It's um, that's the world we live in. But I just don't know that you can do anything except leave punishment, um, which may or may not make that big a difference um, without building trust, without making people think that they can come to you. I, the Giants were bragging about this partnership they had with a, uh, with a women's group in New York. And I'm just thinking, well, did anyone refer Molly Brown to that? That's a great step. And you will have this partnership. You know them. All you have to do is give her someone's business card. Right. Call this person. And I know that sounds silly and small, but it's not. And that can make a huge difference, you know, just getting people to help. And, you know, after that, we want to talk about, well, we have to do some suspensions for public relations. Whatever. But that's public relations. That's completely public relations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think you have to start with this level of trust that is just not there. And I don't know how to get there because it just feels like such a dark time of distrust between everyone right now. And I don't fault anyone for feeling that yeah. at all. Well, it's, it's kind of crazy that we've discussed in this podcast that I think every party involved in these scenarios, the, the teams – players, the victims, they all have no trust for Roger Goodell in the NFL. I think that's a big problem. Um, you know, when you're trying to enforce any any new policy or any existing policy, uh, so it's it's tough to know it's tough to see a solution that's going to fix this problem or some of the other ones that are uh, affecting the NFL right now. Right. I mean, yeah, especially when you compare it, I think, to Major League Baseball, which um, I, I'm not ready to say their policy is great or wonderful. I have issues with it as well. But I do think it makes a difference that where you have a stronger union, stronger labor, they both came to the table and they agreed to something, right? For better or worse, everyone's going to have to say, these are the rules we agreed to. And 
I do think that there is something in that. And you don't have anything like that in the NFL. And so we just keep repeating the same cycle over and over and over. And I know at work, we've been saying this, it feels like it's just Ray Rice, the sequel. Absolutely. Yeah. How much of this lands on, on Roger Goodell's lap? He, you know, every time he makes a public statement, uh, he digs a deeper hole for himself. The, the fans don't understand uh, he's not exactly the most eloquent spokesperson uh, for the issue of you know confronting the domestic violence, or, or and he seems to lack a basic sensitivity in his dealings, uh, you know, with victims, with the public, and, and just in how he you know meets out punishment. Is this his Waterloo? I mean, can he come back from this? Honestly, he makes the owners so much money, though, right? I mean, if we're going to be honest, the NFL's job is to make money. Under Roger Goodell, it has made more money than ever. Um, Spencer Hall wrote something wonderful over at SB Nation during Ray Rice, which I still think about a lot, about how uh, I think the headline was something to the effect of Roger Goodell failed exactly as he's supposed to, um, writing how one of the brilliant things about the commissioner's office is you can get so mad at it, you forget that he's actually not the person running the show. It's actually 32 owners who are in charge. And I keep coming back to that about, God, what a, how, how convenient that that all worked out. He's Um, their fall guy. He is their fall guy. And which is why I think it's actually very important that people are getting our, calling out the Mara family on, on this one, you know, uh, that they're realizing this is even bigger than the commissioner's office. And so, you know, frankly, I think if Roger Goodell finally gets fired, it's going to be because TV ratings are down. <laughs> it's well, not going to be it, because of this. Yeah. They are down. This right. year, the uh, Monday night football ratings are down, uh, I think, it, somewhere between 18 and 24% overall, Sunday night football, Thursday night football, Monday night football. The ratings are down consistently. And you know, I wonder what this, what kind of a message the handling of this episode is sending to your to, to your female viewership. I think, I think the question is, what is causing that? I mean, and is it these sorts of things? Is it the concussion litigation that's going on, or is it the election and just sort of oversaturation? And I think for Goodell to have any movement on his office, I mean, I think his mess ups are going to have to start showing up on the bottom line, which to this point they haven't, but. I think we're getting to the point where maybe we're seeing that. Yeah, I mean, maybe. It's, um, you know, I don't know that it's ever just one thing. I mean, some, like you said, there's so many things. There's concerns about concussions. There's concerns about how the league is handling domestic violence. There's just the fact that some people say, and I agree, that the quality of play is just down. I personally, I hate Thursday night football. I don't think they're good games. I think the league got greedy on that one. And now I've got an extra bad football game on every week. So um, I, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's many things. But if we do see the end of Roger Goodell, it's it's going to be about the bottom line. I don't think that it's going to be about any concerns about the players or their wives or female fans in any meaningful way, because I don't, (laughs) why should they be? They haven't been for a long time. Why now? And we're still going to have the same 32 owners and they will probably install another even more excellent, fabulous fall guy. Well, I mean, Paul Tagliabue and Pete Rozelle weren't exactly puppets. I mean, at some point, you just you know, you, you start to wonder, well, can't they improve on Roger Goodell? He's the only one of the major uh, professional sports league commissioners that doesn't have a law degree. 
you can't put him in front of a microphone uh, without heavily scripting him. And even when he's heavily scripted, things go awry. I, I, I think there's tremendous room for uh, uh, improvement over the current version of the NFL's commissioner. And, and, and how much further does the NFL, do, do the 32 owners, want to keep taking these kinds of public relation hits uh, due to failings that maybe another commissioner wouldn't be so, so negligent or reckless to commit? Yeah, I think there's a good comparison there, Dan, to be made to uh, you know my favorite league commissioner, Adam Silver, and to kind of Diana's point earlier about what what a personal conduct policy would look like is essentially what the NBA has. They don't have a policy, but Adam Silver and his team looks at it on a case by case basis. Doesn't look at it from a games perspective. We saw three, two or three years ago, Jeffrey Taylor get suspended for 25 games. And then we saw just this year the next suspension was Darren Collison for eight games. And Silver came out with a long explanation of why that was, uh, you know, trying to be as open as possible. And I think, I think a lot can be learned from the way that NBA is running its business right now. Yeah, I mean, I think they like their players. The NBA has a more cordial relationship with their own players. With the NFL, I mean, I've talked to I've talked to some people associated with the NFL. It's almost like a scorched earth um, attitude, a zero sum game when it comes to the relationship between management and labor, and that that goes yeah. to the root of it. No, that really does. I, again, I think especially on issues um, you know like like domestic violence or, or just just anything serious, <laughs> you know, if we're really going to decide to start addressing what's really afflicting society. You know, we're going to talk about domestic violence and if we're going to talk about, you know, addiction, um, for there's where to begin. Um, it, it really does have to start at a, at a point of, um, of trust and compassion. And that's just, that just cannot be further from the relationship the NFL has with its players or with its fans right now. I just don't think anyone trusts the NFL on anything. And I just don't know how they can do anything <laughs> productive or that anyone feels good about without it. Well, Diana, we've gone way over how long we told you we'd keep you. But it was very interesting, and I'm, uh, I apologize about that. But thank you very, very much for coming on. We really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, everyone go check out uh, Diana's work at deadspin.com. Do you have any uh, new articles coming out that you want to plug? Um, I don't actually. I've taken a um, mostly off week this week because um, this all came about right after the Derrick Rose trial had ended. And um, I am very lucky to have amazing coworkers who can um, cover everything while I'm, I'm gone. Um, they don't really need to be there, I, I joke. So. <laughs> Just go to deadspin.com. I know they've still been covering what's going on with with Josh Brown and everything else. Um, So just go check out Deadspin. We're awesome.